Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be discussing the five precepts. If you've heard that Gautama Buddha taught no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants, then you haven't really studied Gautama Buddha's teachings on the five precepts. His words about the five precepts and how we should practice his teachings are much more deep and much more profound than just the simple translations of no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants. So let's discuss these precepts and get really in-depth with how you can apply them in your life. Before we start talking about the precepts, it's important that we understand what the precepts are. These aren't rules. These aren't commandments. These aren't things that everybody must follow. What Gautama Buddha did in his teachings is he provided guidance. As a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, he discovered how to attain enlightenment. What enlightenment is, is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And that mental state is permanent. It's one where once you attain it, you'll never go back to experiencing anger or frustration, boredom, loneliness, irritation, or any of these other discontent feelings ever again, like guilt and shame and fear, things like this. So Gautama Buddha was well aware of how to acquire and attain this mental state of enlightenment. And in doing so, he provided teachings that would help you reach enlightenment. And all of his teachings are based around awakening the mind, gradually learning, not believing anything, but gradually learning and implementing teachings that will lead to your own awakening. And these teachings are based around the teaching of the natural law of Gama. Gama is the Pali word and the source of Gautama Buddha's teachings are captured in Pali. So I use the word Gama but you may be familiar with the word karma. Essentially what gamma or karma is, and karma is from the Sanskrit language. What you may be familiar with here are these two words that are being used in kind of a mystical, almost magical way. I like to demystify this word and help you understand what is gamma before we actually start talking about the five precepts. Because the five precepts are meant to significantly reduce unwholesome gamma production. Gamma is essentially cause and effect or action and result. 
It's a natural law that exists that the mind is largely unaware of. And because of our unawareness of this natural law, we walk around and we do things on a daily basis that contributes to our own discontent mind. Because we're causing harm to others, that harm is then returned to us through the natural law of gamma. And just like gravity affected you all through your life, even when you were two, three, four years old, and you knew nothing about the natural law of gravity, it still affected you. But the more you learned about this natural law, the more awakened the mind became to this natural law, the more wisdom you had about the natural law of gravity, you could stand, you could walk, you could run, you could jump, and you could move about the world more peacefully. And the more you learn about the natural law of gamma through Gautama Buddha's teachings, you will be able to function in the world more peacefully, more calmly, more serenely, more contently with joy. So this natural law of gamma of cause and effect or action and result is all about the result of your decisions. You as an individual generate your own gamma. Nobody else can generate gamma for you. And you can't generate gamma and transfer it to others. Everything you do, every decision you make has certain results associated with it. This is the action or result or cause and effect. So essentially what Gautama Buddha's teachings are doing is providing you guidance so that you understand this natural law in excruciating detail so that you can make better and better decisions in your life to one, of course, train your mind and allow the mind to be more peaceful, more calm, serene, content with joy, but also so that you're reducing and ultimately eliminating any unwholesome decisions that would cause harm to other people or other beings like animals and so forth. Because by us causing harm to other beings, that harm is returned to us. And in order to attain enlightenment, you need to get to a point where you're making very good decisions and you're not causing harm to others so that no harm is brought to you. So the five precepts are meant to help you learn how to drastically and significantly reduce your unwholesome gamma. Now, if you've been studying Gautama Buddha's teachings or you've been studying with me in previous sessions or listening to the podcast or reading the book or anything else that you've been studying with me on, you've probably already encountered the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is a centralized core teaching that ties together all the Buddhist teachings, primarily all of his teachings, somehow link into the Eightfold Path, including the Five Precepts. It is the Eightfold Path that will teach you and guide you how to fully extinguish all your unwholesome gamma. And remember, the Five Precepts are a part of this Eightfold Path. However, the Eightfold Path goes far beyond what the Five Precepts teach. So the five precepts are just a small subset of the Eightfold Path. So if one is interested to attain this mental state of enlightenment, where the mind is permanently peaceful, permanently calm, serene, content, and joyful, they really need to dive into the Eightfold Path. But in doing so, you also need a deep understanding of the five precepts, because it's the five precepts 
that are kind of like a baseline minimum of what you would need to learn and practice in order to start significantly reducing any unwholesome gamma production. So while we get started here and while we start learning, I want to make sure that I introduce you to what the Buddha said about the five precepts, not just the simple no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying and no intoxicants, because these are very basic, basic, basic translations that don't really fully illuminate what the Buddha was talking about. Also, the way that they're worded makes them sound like they're rules or some kind of commandments that the Buddha was giving. You know, no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct. Almost like he's ordering you to do something. And this isn't how Gautama Buddha taught. Essentially, what he did is he provided guidance and he provided the teachings that would lead to enlightenment. But it was up to other people to choose whether they were going to learn those and practice those or not. He didn't use guilt or fear or shame in order to motivate people into learning and practicing his teachings. Because part of his teachings are to eliminate guilt, fear, and shame. So he didn't use guilt, fear, and shame to try to motivate people in order to learn and practice the teachings that he shared. So there's no rules, there's no commandments, there's no sins as part of Gautama Buddha's teachings. What you have is you have guidance that when you learn it and when you practice it, you will see that it leads to you acquiring wisdom and through that wisdom, you will then function differently in the world and you will start making better and better decisions of how to guide your life, thus creating more and more wholesome karma, or thus creating more and more wholesome results as part of your decisions. So this word karma, really what it means is the result of your decisions or the results of your decisions. So good decision-making in your life through the Eightfold Path, including the five precepts, is going to lead your life closer and closer to a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content existence with joy. So let's get into the five precepts and start discussing what those are. The first precept it's much more detail and much more in-depth than just no killing. What the Buddha actually said was abandoning the taking of life, refrain from taking life without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Now, when you're studying Gautama Buddha's words, Remember, he spoke in a language that is no longer a spoken language today. And we capture his teachings in the Pali language. But we've had really good quality translations provided through various practitioners and monks who are doing very high quality translations. The vast majority of the translations that I use come from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He has been very, very adept and very, very dedicated to translating Gautama Buddha's teachings and has done an excellent job at moving his teachings from the Pali language into English. So here, 
you can see this first precept is much more detailed than just no killing. And it helps us to understand what Gautama Buddha was really truly teaching. But as you study the precepts or you study any other parts of Gautama Buddha's teachings that contain his language directly, you need to really break down the words and you need to really understand everything that's being shared with you. Now this precept is really referring to living beings. This is all about taking the life of living beings. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain the precept to you and then I'm going to go through some things to help you reflect on this precept and decide how you might consider practicing it. So to me, what a living being is, based on everything else that I've studied in Gautama Buddha's teachings, is a living being is a being that has what's called the five aggregates. I'm not going to go into what the five aggregates are exactly because it's a more advanced teaching and beyond what we're going to be describing today. But essentially, a living being is going to have consciousness. A living being is going to have a mind. Okay, So a living being is, of course, humans. There's a physical form, which is the body, and then there's the consciousness or the mind. A human being is a living being. And animals or insects, birds, mammals, aquatic life that has a consciousness, that has a mind and a physical body is a living being. Essentially, one of the quick and easy ways for you to, to determine a living being is, is it possible for this being to move itself on its own? move from its location, move, move physical location. So for example, an animal, an insect, a bird, an aquatic life, a human being, we are living beings. While we consider plants to be alive, many of us do, they're not considered living beings because they don't have a consciousness. They don't have a mind. They don't have a brain. They don't have a nervous system. So plants are not living beings. This is why we tend to eat plants to sustain our life. So here, what Gautama Buddha is saying is trembling for the welfare of all living beings, essentially being very compassionate. Compassion means concern for others' misfortune. So if we are practicing this precept, you want to ask yourself, if we are abandoning the taking of life, refraining from taking life, without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings, would we kill other living beings? And if we did, we know that harm will come to us. Because if somebody went out and murdered somebody, there's going to be harm. We're harming another living being, therefore harm is going to come to us. We will typically go to jail, we'll be tracked down, we'll be found, police, law enforcement, maybe local villagers or community members will track us down and you know we'll go to jail. But if for some reason we escape the clutches of law enforcement, we're probably going to be on the run and we're going to be pretty fearful and we're going to be looking over our shoulder everywhere we go because we know that we've murdered this person. And this is 
the guilt and the shame that's associated, the fear that's associated with the action of killing or taking life. So what Gautama Buddha is saying here is essentially we need to preserve life. We need to practice harmlessness where we're not harming other living beings. And in doing so, if you're not harming other living beings, then your mind will be more peaceful because you know that you're not harming other living beings. You're living a life of harmlessness. So I've put some bullet points here for you to reflect on. I'm not going to give you necessarily an answer here, but you need to reflect on this for your own practice. If you ask me, I, I will tell you how I practice, but you have to decide how you practice. Because if you're abandoning the taking of life, if you're trembling for the welfare of all living beings, would you participate or make decisions for the euthanasia of a human or an animal? Often in our society, we euthanize animals that we feel are at the end of their life. We feel that that's somehow more compassionate to kill the animal. However, each being needs to live out its full life in order to experience all of its gamma so that at the end of that life, if it's reborn, it has the ability to be reborn into a better life in the next life. If we kill an animal or we kill a human prematurely, then that being didn't have a chance to fulfill its entire life and then die a natural death. So therefore, its gamma is not fully extinguished and it can be reborn in a worse condition than it is now. So while we consider euthanasia of an animal to be compassionate, it's actually not compassionate. Yes, an animal can be suffering. It can be having cancer or it can have a broken leg or other problems, but we need to allow all beings to live out their natural life and consider whether euthanasia is really living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings, knowing that in killing a living being, we're making the decision to do that. And oftentimes people who are faced with these kind of decisions contemplate them very deeply and it's very challenging for them. And even if they feel they've made the right decision in euthanasia, oftentimes after the animal dies, there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. So for me, I will share what I do is I would not participate in the euthanasia of a human or an animal because I know that this is not living with compassion, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. The next one that you need to reflect on and consider is termination of a pregnancy. Gautama Buddha talks about a life, a human life, and what's required in order for a human life to be created. And he describes the coming together of the embryo in the woman, the sperm essentially from the man, and the consciousness. There's three things that are needed in order for there to be life. And he described these three things in his own language. And what he shared was essentially the embryo from, or the egg from the mother, the sperm from the dad, and the consciousness. And in having these three things, 
essentially there is life inside a mother's stomach. So if we terminate that pregnancy, are we really abandoning the taking of life, trembling for the welfare of all living beings? Thirdly, you need to reflect on suicide. If somebody is interested in committing suicide, there is still craving there. There is a craving for extermination of life. And what we know is that craving is the fuel that leads to rebirth. If there's craving, you will be reborn. This is the primary problem that the Buddha described in his teachings. Craving or desire or attachment is a longing or a strong eagerness, a mental longing, a mentally strong eagerness for something. And oftentimes people who are contemplating suicide have come to a really challenging point in their life where things seem very difficult and they feel like the only way out is suicide. But essentially, for someone who's decided to take their own life and commit suicide, they still have craving. They have craving for extermination. So if they think that suicide is actually solving the problem, it actually isn't. It's actually making the problem much worse because now they're going to be reborn multiple times before they ever get a chance to once again become human again and end the cycle of rebirth. So suicide, taking your own life, it's not a practice of compassion, trembling for the welfare of all living beings, your own life refraining from the taking of life. And then fourthly, we have assisted suicide. Nowadays, there are certain places where you can actually request assisted suicide, or you can actually assist people in suicide. If you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a family member for someone who's requested assisted suicide, this is once again, ending a life prematurely before natural death, therefore, there's going to be rebirth. And while people feel that this is somehow solving the problem, it actually isn't because this person, this being is now going to be reborn multiple times. The next one that I've put up here for you to reflect on is capital punishment. Capital punishment is essentially killing sponsored by a government based on a particular crime. Now, oftentimes people who are punished through capital punishment, they have actually murdered, they have actually killed, or done some other horrible acts that the government feels that they're justified in killing this living being. But a person who's practicing these teachings closely and who's interested in reducing and ultimately eliminating any unwholesome results based on their decisions, any unwholesome gamma, you would need to really consider whether capital punishment is abandoning the taking of life, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. For me, I wouldn't participate in capital punishment because it's still taking life. It's very clear in the Buddhist teachings, abandon the taking of life. And then the next one, attacking in war or any government-sponsored killing. Oftentimes, there's governments that are fighting with each other, different countries, and it boils up so much with the leaders that they send in militaries to start killing each other. 
And then ultimately we get a lot of problems after the war. This war, this killing, this government-sponsored killing, you know, assassinations, regime change, things like this, it's only precipitating and creating more and more killing in society. And this is going to cause harm in the world and therefore harm is returned. So even acts of war or government-sponsored killing, while we think that that's somehow appropriate for some, may think that that's appropriate, it's going to lead to problems. And this is why Gautama Buddha says, abandoning the taking of life. I don't know any war throughout history that has ever had a good positive result. Every single war that I've ever looked at, every single war that I've ever researched has had nothing but killing and stealing and raping, murdering, destruction. I've never seen anything positive from all of that destruction. And this is why the Buddha is saying that if we kill and we don't live compassionate, trembling for the welfare of living beings, there's going to be harm. The next one here is consuming animal products. Through consuming animal products like meat or even using leather or eggs or things like this, products of animals, we oftentimes need to kill in order to consume these animal products. By doing so, it leads to harm. And right now we're at a unique time in history where as we're talking, there's a massive virus that's being spread all over the world. And this is essentially coming from a market where there was massive amount of animals being killed and there was close contact between humans and animals and they were being killed for meat and for consumption. And essentially what the Buddha shared here 2,500 years ago is that if we harm, if we take the life of animals or any living being, he's saying all living beings, then there's going to be harm that's returned to us. And you can see that right here with the coronavirus. We're experiencing this harm throughout the world because we as a humanity have been making decisions to harm living beings. And through our harm of having markets where we're selling living beings, where we're killing living beings, where we're ingesting animal flesh of living beings, we are causing harm and therefore harm is coming to us. And not only now with the coronavirus, but there's all types of research that shows that hormones and drugs and things that are being put into animals, not only viruses that are laying dormant and get transferred to us, but these drugs and toxins that get put into animals as part of the farming process, when we eat those animals, we are actually ingesting those same toxins, those same hormones, those same drugs, and it's harmful for the body. Now remember, these aren't rules. So I'm not telling you to run out and become vegan right now. I'm not pushing that teaching onto you. But what I'm sharing with you is guidance that if you choose to live a vegan lifestyle, what you will notice is that the body will become more healthy. The body will become more light. The mind will become more calm and more peaceful because you know you're not doing harm in the world and all the harm through farming of animals that is being done to the environment will be more and more reduced. So you need to take this precept 
very, very detailed and look at it very, very closely and understand what the Buddha is actually sharing with you here. It's not a black and white type of situation. And depending how closely you practice this teaching will depend on what the results are that you experience. The last bullet point here that I would like to talk about is defense or per protection. Sometimes we're in situations where we may be at home or we may be outside and somebody comes to us with a knife or a gun or these types of things. It's important that you realize that there's a lot of decisions that lead up to that situation, especially if we're outside at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., if we're at a bar or a place uh, where uh, scrupulous things are happening. We've made a lot of decisions to put ourselves in that situation to begin with. So there's a lot of decisions that we can make to avoid the need to have to defend ourselves or protect ourselves. But there may be situations where you're just at home and somebody comes barging in, breaking into your house and attacking you. In this situation, what I would do is I would attempt to try to defend myself and my family as much as I can and do as least amount of harm as possible. However, if it's impossible for me to do so without taking the life of somebody, I would need to take the life of somebody in order to protect life. So the compassionate way to live would not be to sit there and watch your family perish at the hands of an attacker and allow people to die in front of you when you could have actually potentially done something if you have the ability to do so. So this precept, while it says abandoning the taking of life, and we want to practice that in all cases as much as possible, if you can defend yourself with as little harm as possible to the other beings, then that's great. But if you have no other choice but to protect yourself and you have to kill as part of that, that's also the gamma of that other person. So if somebody barges into your house at 2 a.m. in the morning with a gun and you happen to be able to take a baseball bat or something else and you hit them one time or and they get knocked out and die, well, that's that person's gamma. They chose to come in your house at 2 a.m. in the morning with a gun they weren't delivering flowers. They weren't coming to clean your house or give you a massage. They were there with bad intentions. And as a result, their decision to do that resulted in their own death. Likewise, if you were outside and an animal attacked you, if you were outside and a dog or a pack of dogs viciously attacked you and you had to take life in order to protect yourself, well, it's those beings gamma that they were being aggressive and they were essentially trying to kill you. And therefore the only way that you could resolve the situation was to kill them in this type of situation. And this is the only situation that I can think of where I would actually take the life of another being. So you need to think through these types of things and these types of decisions that you may encounter in life and try to decide ahead of time how you may make decisions. Because in the heat of the moment, when you actually need to make decisions about these certain things, you may not have the full capacity to make the decisions 
on these certain topics as you do now. So what's important is that you actually take the time to reflect on these and actually figure out how would you make decisions on these various topics. If you're reading this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, I've put some discussion in there about how I would practice these teachings on each and every one of these points. So if you are reading that book or you have read it or you plan to read it, you'll see more of my thoughts on each of these inside that book. So let me stop here and see what questions that we have, either from the virtual classroom or from the social media platforms that Max is monitoring. So we have a couple of questions on Facebook. Bill asks, are DNR orders considered assisted suicide? Or is that allowing natural death to occur? Uh, is that uh, DNR? Is that where somebody leaves a, a, a dying will where they say if they are dead, don't resuscitate them? I think so. Yeah, it stands for do not resuscitate order. <clears throat> do not resuscitate. Yes. So that's not assisted suicide because the person is technically already died. And what they're saying is essentially, I'm not craving life so much that I would like you to bring me back from the dead and do all this work in order to bring me back. So they've made a previous decision that if they have natural death, don't bring them back from that natural death. So if you follow a DNR uh, request, do not resuscitate. It's not, in my view, suicide or assisted suicide because the person's already died. They're just asking you not to bring them back from the dead. Got it. Okay, so we also have a question from Uma, and Uma asks, if a person has acquired good karma in his life, will he be protected from other people's harm? N not necessarily, because uh, even the Buddha being fully enlightened, there were people that tried to kill him during his lifetime. Even if you've produced a lot of wholesome karma, remember, Uma, I don't know if you were here for the beginning of our talk, karma is the result of our decisions. We have lots of good decisions that we can make based on the teachings of Gautama Buddha, but it doesn't mean that there aren't people that are going to try to do harm to you. You've extinguished all your unwholesome gamma as part of the Eightfold Path, but you're still living in an active world. Even when you're enlightened and you've extinguished all your unwholesome gamma, you're still living in a world where people can potentially for one reason or another, choose to try to kill you. Even the Buddha, people chased him with swords. People, uh, there's stories of people that threw rocks off of high cliffs, big boulders, to try to kill him because they took exception with his teachings, perhaps. So you still have to have what we call discernment, where you need to look at the facts of a situation and you need to make good decisions based on any particular situation that you find yourself encountering. So just because you've done a lot of good, wholesome things and you've got a lot of good results in your life, you've got good friends, you've got good jobs, you've got good companions, you've got a good place to live, you've got food, you've got clothes. This is the result of your, your decisions. This is gamma. 
Gamma is not this magical, mystical thing in the sky that's going to magically protect us just because we've made some good decisions in life. What gamma is, is just the result of our decisions, which means you're probably going to have food, you're going to have money, you're going to have a place to live, shelter, medical treatment, you're going to have good friends. That's what the result of gamma is. That's what wholesome gamma is. And none of that stuff is going to protect you from somebody attacking you. So if somebody attacks you, even though you have good gamma, you need to decide whether you're planning to defend yourself or defend the people around you. And if you do, how are you going to do that? And what I would suggest is that you do it with the least amount of harm possible. We also have another question from Charlie. Charlie asks, bed bugs attack me every night. What is the correct way to go? Can I kill them? And is that considered killing? Yeah, so bed bugs would have consciousness. So killing them would be not following this precept. So what I would suggest that you do, and this is what we did here at one time, we had a little bit of termites coming around our house. What we did is we hired a company that takes care of these problems in a more ethical kind of moral way. What they did is here in Thailand, they have people that would come in with chemicals and literally kill the termites, which is not what we hired. We actually hired a company that has the ability to solve these problems with natural remedies like herbs and things like this. Essentially what they did is they drilled holes around our house in order to put in these herbs that essentially makes it so it's uncomfortable that the termites don't want to exist around our house. So they basically leave and go somewhere else. So with bed bugs, you know, I'm not an exterminator. I'm not a person who understands their life cycle. And, and I know, but I know they, they, there's a lot of infestation. You're going to need to potentially and most likely have professional help in order to get rid of these bed bugs. So you're going to need to find a provider that you feel is working within what you feel would be appropriate for this particular precept. That's one thing I would say. Another thing I would say is you also have to think about the gamma associated with these bed bugs, you know, them infesting your house. They have certain gamma as well as being an insect. These beings that are insects, they may have been human at one time or they may have been other animals at one time, but their gamma is that they are now these insects. And as an insect, they are oftentimes considered to be pests or they infestate or they come into the house like this. So you need to find, I would suggest, kind of an ethical way to rid yourself of these bed bugs and work to ensure that you're not actually doing any kind of killing if it's possible. Typically, when an insect lands on a practitioner who's practicing these teachings very deeply is we tend to brush it off or we tend to blow it off. Uh, here in Thailand, it's very common to have ants in your house. In America, when I lived there, you know, you would never have ants and very few insects in your house. But here in Thailand, it's pretty common to have insects and even geckos in your house. So what we do with the ants is we sweep them up with a broom or we use a vacuum and we suck them up and then we get rid of them out the door with the vacuum or with the broom. With bed bugs, I think it's much more challenging than that. And that's why I would suggest that you consult 
with what you would consider an ethical provider to rid yourself of those bed bugs. I have a question, David, about animal products. It seems there's a lot of disagreement here within the Buddhist community about where to draw the line, because clearly taking life is, is you know, that's, that's a pretty clear-cut issue. But then what about buying meat that has been killed? What about having meat given to you? And then what about products of animals like eggs and dairy? And again, is there a difference there between buying it and taking it yourself? And is buying an animal product considered the taking of life? And I know where you stand on this, but I think that a lot of people find this quite a confusing issue. There's a lot of hair splitting. Yeah, let's let's cover that one. There's a lot of misunderstanding, in my view, within the Buddhist community about this particular precept and how it's practiced. What some people will say is that whoever actually does the killing, they are the ones who are inheriting the unwholesome gamma. And this isn't true. Because remember, gamma is the result of our decisions. So yes, the person who's actually killing the pig or the cow or whatever animal that's being eaten, yes, they're producing unwholesome gamma for themselves. Essentially, their mind is at a point where they're very comfortable killing other living beings. However, when you eat the meat, you're actually eating flesh that has in it toxins and drugs and other substances that are causing harm to the body. So the action of killing is harmful for your mind because you're now executing another being and killing a pig or a cow or a chicken or what have you. But just like if somebody else stole a car and gave you the stolen car, the police come, you have the stolen car, you're going to have the bad results. You're going to have the unwholesome gamma because of your decision to take this car. So even though someone else stole the car, you actually are in possession of the car and therefore the results of those unwholesome decisions are going to come to you. The same thing happens with meat is even though somebody else has killed it because the hormones because of the toxins, because of the drugs that are in this meat, when you eat it, it's going to affect your body and it's going to affect you on an individual level. But also by you choosing to eat meat, that meat is being killed for you. And that means that we precipitate farming within the world. And there's massive amount of research that shows that farming across the world with factory farms is causing harm to the earth. This is why our water quality has gotten very poor. This is why our air quality has gotten very poor. There's a massive amount of harm that is done to the earth and the environment through factory farming. So the choice to eat meat is causing you harm on an individual level to your physical body, and it's also causing harm to the environment. What people tend to do is they tend to justify their decision to eat meat and they try to find ways to do that. And typically what some people try to think about is they say, oh, whoever killed the animal, they're getting the unwholesome results. They're getting the gamma, not me. But this is a misunderstanding of what gamma is. 
and looking at the results of gamma and looking at how eating meat causes harm by disease to the actual physical body, your physical body. One of the things that you can look at here to know how this works is like when I grew up, it was kind of normal for a female to get her menstrual cycle somewhere around 12 to 14 years old. Nowadays, girls are getting their menstrual cycle as young as five years old. Where I feel this is coming from is it's the hormones that are being put into the animals to grow them faster. And then that meat is being ingested by humans, which is producing hormone growth in the body faster than when we were children. I even noticed my son at the age of five or six, he's got a massive amount of hair on his legs. Now I have hair on my legs, but I didn't get hair on my legs until I was about 12 or 14 years old. But he's already got hair in places on his body that I didn't have when I was his age. And he's now seven and a half. So what you want to look at is you want to look at the harm, because if there's harm, then there's something that we've done to harm. So if you look at all the studies and the research that shows how much disease and illness we're encountering through ingesting meat, then you can see that it's causing harm to the physical body. You can also see the research that's causing harm to the environment. And that's because we are killing and taking life. The Buddhist teachings here are very simple, very concise, but you have to expand it beyond and you have to reflect on this teaching beyond. And then the second part of your question there, Max, was about byproducts like eggs and cheese and milk and things like this. And it's exactly the same thing because we're pumping hormones into cows. We're pumping hormones into other animals and drugs and toxins and antibiotics and all of these medicines. All of that is getting into the eggs, into the milk, into the cheese. And when we eat that, it's causing harm to our body. And we're also causing harm to the animals. A lot of these farmed animals like chickens and other things have various flus and various viruses that haven't yet bridged over to the human realm, the human beings yet. And there's professionals all across the world that are responsible for trying to manage these viruses so that they don't come into the human world. However, they're not going to be perfect. And these viruses, the longer that we stay attached to eating animals, their flesh, through killing and as long the longer as a humanity that we stay attached to eating byproducts like eggs and cheese and milk the longer that we do this as humanity we're going to continue to see viruses like the coronavirus come into the human world and we're going to continue to see damage to the environment so by cleaning this up on an individual basis person by person making these choices you're going to be contributing to your own improved physical and mental well-being, as well as the well-being of all of humanity, including the environment. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. So this is one that you're going to need to reflect on. You're going to need to think about. I realize that what I'm sharing are maybe things that you haven't learned or discussed before related to this precept, because perhaps what you have been working with, if you've been studying Buddhist teachings at all, is just the translation of no killing. 
And because people are working with just this translation of no killing, it's very easy to say, well, it's all about whoever did the killing. I didn't kill that animal. I just ate it. So people who are teaching through these very basic translations, they don't have the full illuminating details of the Buddha's words. And here you can see he very clearly says, abandoning the taking of life, refraining from taking life without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. If we've got 60,000 chickens in a chicken house and they're hot, they're sweaty, they're caged up, they're giving us eggs, we're eating those eggs, are we really compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings? If we're injecting pigs and, and prodding them with electric probes and uh, killing them and eating their flesh, are we really living compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings? So we need to look at these more deep teachings that have the Buddha's full language and apply them to our life and make sure that we are continuing to improve our practice more and more and more. If you're currently eating meat now, I don't judge you for that because I used to eat meat. I used to do some of these things, right? I, I didn't do many of these things, but I definitely used to eat meat. It wasn't until the last year and a half, two years that I switched. So there's no judgment from me. And this is no, you know, David's better than all of his students. I would never think that way at all because just like I gradually had to move towards practicing these teachings closer and closer, the same thing has to happen for you. Just because you're in a different place in your practice than I am doesn't mean I'm better or worse than you or doesn't mean you're better or worse than me. It just means that you need to really take some time to look at these teachings and decide how you would like to practice in order to improve the results of your decisions. And the more information that you get, not only about the teachings, but what's going on around the world, you'll be able to see these teachings more and more clearly that the Buddha 2,500 years ago taught us that if we do take life and we don't live compassionate, trembling for the welfare of living beings, harm is going to come to us. And there's no greater time than right now to see that the Buddha was 100% correct in this teaching. But you need to look at this teaching in a lot of detail, and that's why I've bulleted this the way that I have, and I've provided the guidance in the book to help you think about this, reflect on this, and then ultimately make good personal choices of how you're going to practice this first precept. The second precept is abandoning the taking of what is not given, living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given, without stealing. This is essentially what you think it is and what you've hopefully been taught your entire life. Not to steal, not to take things that don't belong to us, because in doing so, we cause harm to others, and this harm can be returned to us. A lot of times we heard these teachings in other traditions, or we've been taught this our whole life, but we don't necessarily 100% think about how harm comes to us by doing these things. If you think about people's possessions, they've worked really hard to get to the point where they could buy a car or an iPhone or a set of headphones or a computer 
or even a pencil or a stapler or a pair of shoes. And these things that they've purchased in their life contribute to their life and help them to essentially do what they need to do in this life. If we take those things from those people, it's going to harm them. It's going to harm that other person. And therefore, harm is going to come to us. And we know this because we can be arrested for stealing. We can also be attacked by other people. So we need to make sure that we're not stealing from other people and that we don't take things that aren't given to us. Here, another part of this precept is accepting what is given. If you remember some of the other talks that I've shared with you, there's a practice of generosity in the Buddhist teachings where we're sharing things with other people. We're not holding on. We're not clinging. We're not grasping and holding on to things like money or possessions or resources. We learn to share with others. And this helps to train the mind to let go and to not have strong craving, which is the primary problem that the Buddha taught. So in a society like here in Thailand that is practicing the teachings very well, it's very common for people to just give you things. So oftentimes when I'm coming back from the store, I will stop at the front of our village where there's some security guards and I will give them a bottle of soy milk or I'll give them a pack of nuts or I'll give them little things. Or if I'm outside and I see somebody that is homeless, I might give them some food or I might buy them a drink or something like this. Or conversely, when I'm out, sometimes and oftentimes people will give me things. They will give me bananas or food or they'll, they'll just give me things. So accepting what is given is when somebody offers you something to just accept it. In our Western culture, sometimes when people try to give us things, we think that somehow what they're saying to us is, oh, you can't afford to buy a bottle of soy milk, so I'm going to give it to you. And we kind of feel shameful or guilty, or we feel like it somehow lessens us by accepting a gift from somebody else. But here in Thailand, we understand that this is just generosity. This is someone being nice and being friendly. So when somebody offers us something, we just accept it. We don't cut it off and say, no, 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 I don't want that. I don't want that. We just accept what somebody gives to us. And then in Thailand, if we can't use this thing that somebody gave us, then we give it to somebody else and we let them use it. And in our culture, in Western culture, we would call this re-gifting. And oftentimes we're taught that this is wrong. But in reality, what's happened here is somebody has given me a gift and I've accepted their generosity and they felt kind and peaceful and polite by giving me that gift and showing the generosity and not holding on to things. And I've graciously accepted that gift and I've acknowledged their appreciation and gratitude through accepting the gift. But now if I can't use it, now I can hand it off to somebody else and give it to somebody else, which means I'm not holding on to this and I'm sharing with somebody else. And sometimes there are certain things in Thailand that go around to two, three, four, five people before they actually get used. So rather than me accepting a blanket, so say I accept a blanket from somebody and rather than leaving it in my closet for 20 years and it just deteriorates and nobody ever gets a chance to use it because I don't need it 
or it's not a particular material that works well for me, I'm allergic to it, rather than just holding on to this blanket just for the sake of holding on to it, why not give that to somebody else who can actually use it rather than have it deteriorate? So this concept that we have in Western culture where we reject things that people give us or once somebody's given us something, we feel like we can't hand it off to somebody else. This is not a good way to practice. What we need to practice is accepting things from people. And then if we can't use it, we can hand it off to somebody else. That's completely normal and would be acceptable. The other point that I want to make here on this precept is awaiting what is given. Another situation that I remember from childhood is, you know, coming into our classroom, our teacher's got a stapler, a ruler, pins and pencil sharpener, things like this on their desk. And children being children, you know, just walking in and feeling like we can take the stapler and just start using the stapler and put it back. You know, it seems pretty simple, but that's not awaiting what is given. And in that situation, it can cause harm and we can have bad results. There may be some teachers who have already given us pre-authorization that says, anytime you need anything on my desk, go ahead and use it. You guys are welcome to do that. And that is awaiting what is given where there might be another teacher who would prefer that their students actually ask for permission before using something. And in that situation, we need to make sure that we're acknowledging and honoring somebody's wishes. And we're not just taking something as simple as a stapler, using a couple staples and putting it back. Because if the teacher happened to walk in in the middle of that, we could have problems. So we always want to make sure that if we're going to use something of somebody else's, that we ask for permission. This is about wait, awaiting what is given. So I would like to pause here and see what questions you guys have before we move on to the next precept. We don't have any more questions at the moment, David. So um, I think we can probably move on. But I'd just like to encourage anyone to ask any questions they may have. I will raise them live on this call. I will go ahead and move to the next precept, which is the third precept. The third precept is related to and typically translated as no sexual misconduct. But here, if you read the Buddha's actual words and not use a simple translation of no sexual misconduct, you can understand much more deeply what he was talking about. Here, the very first words that he uses is abandoning unchastity. Chastity would be somebody who's only having sexual intercourse or sexual contact with one person, that they're reserving themselves for this sexual contact with one person. So unchastity would be somebody who's having sex with lots and lots and lots of people. And we understand that if we did that, it can cause us harm because we can get harm through STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. We can get harm where we, we either get impregnated or we impregnate lots of people, or we can break the trust and loyalty of our partners. So what he's saying is abandon unchastity, essentially being with one partner at a time. And he goes into much more detail here when he describes what he's sharing. He says, abandoning sexual relations with women or men. I added this part because he was essentially talking to men 
when he was teaching. So he said women, but I'm adding men, who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister, or relative. Essentially what he's talking about here is minors, people who are living at home with their family, an eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, someone who's living at home is going to be shaped and taught and learning from their family. So if somebody comes in and starts having sex with this male or female who is learning from their parents, this intimate contact can move their mind in a harmful direction. So what the Buddha is sharing here is we should wait until this person moves out from their parents' house before we actually decide to start having sex. The next part of this is one who are protected by their Dhamma. What, he, what a Dhamma is, is Dhamma is the teachings. So in the Buddhist teachings, there's some people who choose to take a vow of celibacy, who choose not to have sex in order to reduce their craving and their desire for sexual contact. Monks do this as soon as they're ordained, and Beaconese as well, the female ordained. And there's other people, some people who wear white and even just regular lay practitioners who are wearing regular clothes will oftentimes take a vow of celibacy. If this person is doing this and we tried to lure them away from that, it's going to cause harm and therefore harm is going to come to us. So we need to respect somebody's wishes and their practice to not have sex as part of a vow of celibacy. The next part of this is who have a husband, wife, or partner whose violation entails a penalty. So here he's saying somebody who's already in a committed relationship. If someone's in a committed relationship, then we shouldn't have sex with them. And if we are in a committed relationship, we shouldn't have sex with other people because this is going to cause harm. It's going to break trust. It's going to break down the relationship. We should be in loyal, committed relationships. And we know that if we have sex with lots of different people, it can cause harm. Even if there's an acceptance of the multiple partners, sometimes in today's time, there's relationships where the partners have decided that it's okay if each other has sex with other people. But from the people that I know that have done this, they don't really quite have such a deep intimate connection and they don't quite have the trust of each other because they're not in a loyal committed relationship it's always rough there's always problems in the relationship even though they've agreed to this scenario where you can have sex with multiple people so what the buddha is saying here is just have sex with one person at a time based on a committed loyal relationship and he goes on further here and he says, or even one who has been garlanded by a man or woman as a sign of engagement. So even if there's someone who's engaged and we choose to have sex with them, or if we are engaged and we go and have sexual contact with somebody, it's going to have ramifications where it's going to cause harm. And we've heard of stories where people are engaged to get married the night before their wedding, they go out, they have sex with various people, and then they get married the next day. The husband or wife, the partner finds out a few weeks later or a few months later 
and it causes grave harm to the relationship. So what the Buddha is describing here is very detailed description of what is going to lead to harm in a relationship if we do these types of things. So here are the bullet points that I'm sharing with you that you need to consider, and I think we've covered fairly well, but there's a couple we'll need to go into, is would you have sex with minors as part of your understanding of what the Buddha is teaching here and what leads to harmful activity and harmful results? Would you have sex with multiple partners at one time? Would you have sex while someone is living at home with their relatives? And here, something that I would like to share with you is in Thai society, and I'm sure other cultures as well, there are situations where someone may live at home until they meet a partner. It's very common in Thailand for women or men to live at home until they're 20, 25, 30, even 35, even further with their parents and living together in a cohabitated situation. And then once you meet a partner, that partner might actually move in with you and your parents at their house, or you might move in with your partner's parents. In this situation, in my view, the relatives have been made aware that there is this relationship and the relatives have chosen and decided to allow this partner to move into the home and therefore they're accepting that their sexual contact is part of that. So as part of some cultures around the world where it's common for someone to stay with their relatives until they're married and then once they are married and have a relationship, their partner moves in or you move in with them, at that point in those cultures, there has been an open discussion with all the relatives in the family and they're accepting this new person into the home. Therefore, they're accepting and aware that this relationship is happening and sexual contact is part of that. So that's something to consider and think about as well. And then sex with someone who has previously decided to remain celibate. That's something we covered already. Sex with people who are already committed in relationships. Sex outside of any relationship that you've committed to be faithful to. And then here's some that the Buddha doesn't really necessarily discuss explicitly, but we can pretty much figure out based on his teachings. Sex without consent. In other words, rape or someone who's having sex against another person's will. Now, remember, Gautama Buddha's teachings are about harmlessness, not causing harm to other beings. So it's pretty clear, even though he didn't spell it out here in this precept, that if we had sex with somebody without their consent, we're causing harm. And this is why rape is essentially against the law, because it's causing harm. So if we're practicing these teachings very closely, we would ensure that we're having sexual contact that is mutually agreeable and that there's consent. Sex with people that are human trafficked. The Buddha talked about livelihoods that are based on living beings in the Eightfold Path, which is part of right livelihood, the fifth step of the Eightfold Path. In there, he talks about by having 
livelihoods that involve business or trade in living beings, it's causing harm. So oftentimes paid sexual services are people that are being human trafficked against their will potentially, or they're being coerced into doing so. So having sex in this scenario is going to cause harm. And then even if the person is willingly on their own, say they're an independent paid sexual provider, they're having sex with multiple people and so are you. This is not abandoning unchastity. If we are to practice this precept very closely, we wouldn't have sex with people that are human trafficked, that are prostitutes, or even an independent sexual provider that's paid sexual services because it's not abandoning unchastity and this is going to cause harm. This is why some women and men who sell their body as part of paid sexual services, they oftentimes will have guilt or shame or fear as part of their, their life. People who are in that life will oftentimes get murdered. They'll get addicted to drugs. They'll have all kinds of horrible things happen to them. They may get diseases. They may get injured. So even if none of those physical things happen, a lot of times they're left with a lot of guilt and shame. And this is why my practice and the way that I would suggest people to practice is not to offer paid sexual services and don't participate in paid sexual services. The next one here is same-sex partners. Notice that in the Buddhist teachings around sexual misconduct, he never describes two people of the same gender having sex together would somehow cause problems. Because remember, what he's really focusing on here is abandoning unchastity. Abandoning unchastity. Two loving, consenting adults who are in a mutually beneficial relationship and having sex together, are they harming anyone? The answer that I get back is no, they're not. And the Buddha was aware of people who preferred same-sex relationships. He describes in his teachings in other places that he observed people who were born into a male's body and didn't identify with masculine qualities. And he discusses that he observed females who were born into a female's body and who didn't identify with feminine qualities. But that's all he said. He didn't say anything else. He was actually talking to one of his close students and he just was saying, oh, by the way, you're going to notice that there's males born into a male body who don't identify with masculine qualities. And there's females who are born into a female body that don't identify with female qualities. And that's it. He didn't say it was wrong or they did anything bad or they should feel guilty for doing so. Because if you understand the cycle of rebirth and you understand that we've been countless, countless, countless beings in the past and multiple various genders, this particular existence in this human body, if you've landed in a male's body and you don't identify with male qualities, it makes sense. It's completely normal. And if you're a female that you've or you've been born into a female body, but your mind doesn't identify with female qualities, it's completely normal because you've been many different genders in the past. So people who sometimes use teachings to spread hate and say that same-sex relationships are somehow immoral 
or that someone is wrong because they've been born in one gender but identify as another, they aren't really truly in touch with what the Buddha was teaching because there's nowhere in his teachings that he says that same-sex relationships are somehow going to lead to unwholesome results because two males, two females, or a male and a female that are having sex in a loyal, loving, consenting relationship, it's exactly the same. They're not causing harm to anyone, so therefore no harm is going to come to them. This is the Buddha 2,500 years ago awakened and enlightened to this level of knowledge and wisdom. It's only today in today's society that we're slowly starting to catch up to what the Buddha was teaching 2,500 years ago. If we stood up even 10, 15, 20 years ago and shared what I'm sharing right now, a lot of people would highly disagree with this teaching. And there's even people today that would disagree with what I'm teaching. But I know what the truth is. And the truth is that two same-sex partners that are in a relationship that's loving and loyal to each other, there's no harm that's going to come to them just because the fact that they happen to be the same gender. And then the last thing that I've placed in here is masturbation. Because sometimes in these traditions, people are made to thought that masturbation is somehow immoral or somehow wrong or somehow causing harm. Well, if somebody masturbates excessively and they have craving to do so, then yes, that craving is going to lead to harm and they should start to work to eliminate that craving and ultimately extinguish it. However, masturbation by itself isn't causing any harm because there's no one involved. It's only you. So if people tell you that masturbation is immoral and somehow is wrong, it's not supported by the Buddhist teachings because his teachings are all about harmlessness, not causing harm to other beings. And with masturbation, there are no other beings involved. It's only you in your mind. So again, if you're masturbating excessively, you need to bring that craving down and ultimately extinguish it. However, masturbation can actually be used as a successful tool in order to eliminate sexual craving. Because let's take an example of, say, somebody who has five girlfriends or boyfriends having massive amount of sexual contact in their life. And let's just say they become aware of these teachings and they want to move that down to just one person. Well, this person who has extensive amount of craving and has sex with five different people on an ongoing basis and they move to just one person, that craving is still going to be there and they need to gradually move their mind down to working with these precepts. And masturbation might be the tool that they need to satisfy that craving where they're not doing harm to anybody else and bring their mind into more in line with this precept where they're just having sexual contact with one partner. And then ultimately, over the course of their life, if they choose to eliminate sexual contact 100%, they might use masturbation as a way to slowly diminish and extinguish the craving for sexual contact. So don't ever let anyone share with you that masturbation is completely wrong and immoral because the Buddhist teachings aren't about what necessarily is wrong or right 
what he's teaching you is about how to make good, wholesome decisions and how to extinguish this unwholesome gamma and essentially extinguish craving. So none of these teachings are necessarily black and white, where masturbation is always right or it's always wrong. This is where you need teachers and you need guidance in order to help you on this path. So I'm really glad that you guys have chosen to learn with a teacher where you can actually receive guidance on this path because masturbation can be destructive to the mind if it's being done excessively, but it can also be used successfully in order to diminish sexual craving. So it all depends on what the goals are and how it's being used. And this is why you need guidance and you need teachers to help you along this path and guiding you so that you can make very good decisions to eliminate your unwholesome gamma, essentially producing only good results through your decision making. So I'd like to pause again and see what questions you guys have on this particular precept. No questions at the moment, David. Okay. I will move to the next precept, which is the fourth precept. The fourth precept deals with abandoning false speech. What you've probably heard here is people will say, no lying. And that is part of the precept, but it's much deeper than that. And here you can see the Buddha's words in a more expanded translation. What he's saying is abandoning false speech. And as you're going to hear in a moment, false speech takes many different forms. So we want to abandon false speech, refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Essentially what he's motivating and encouraging us to do through his guidance is be someone who can be relied on, someone who's trustworthy. If you're always speaking the truth, people are going to rely on you. People are going to have good relationships with you. You're going to be much more successful in your personal relationships as well as your business relationships. You're going to see better results in your life by being a truth speaker. Essentially, you're going to have better gamma. You're going to have more wholesome gamma. You're going to have more wholesome results, better results in your life by speaking the truth. So here he's motivating us to be a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. And now what you want to go into is you want to go into some of the teachings along the lines of right speech, because in the Eightfold Path, there's the third step, which is right speech, which this precept connects into. And here you see gossip. What gossip is, is kind of frivolous talk, unbeneficial talk about somebody kind of behind their back. In some cases, it's lies, but in other cases, it's not. For example, if Max and I lived together and I just felt that Max was somewhat untidy in his room and he left it kind of messy. Well, that's Max's choice. That's the way that he lives. And who am I to say whether that's right or wrong? So even though it might be truthful that Max is maybe a little bit messy, what benefit is it for me to go behind him 
and tell other people that he's a little bit messy. If I do this and I gossip behind Max's back, even though it may be true, it's going to come back and harm me. Because even though I might talk to Mike and Bob and Susie and Barbara and I'm gossiping about Max, those people aren't going to feel good to have a relationship with me and have a deep relationship that leads to good results. Because they know in their mind, it's only a matter of time. If I'm gossiping about Max, it's only a matter of time before I gossip about them. So what I'm going to find if I gossip and I'm not a truth speaker or I'm not one to be relied on, if I'm going behind people's back and I'm talking about them, even when true or false, I'm going to find it hard to have relationships with people on a personal level and a business level. So we shouldn't gossip. And then we come to slander. Slander is publicly having mistruths about somebody in order to destroy their character or their reputation. This is going to cause massive harm to that person because our public image, we need to have a certain public image in order to conduct business or conduct life. And if we are lying or we're deceptive or we're talking with deceit essentially about somebody publicly, this is going to cause harm and therefore harm is going to come to us. Here in Thailand, they have very strict slander laws, probably because they're such a Buddhist country where my country of origin, which is America, they have slander laws, but they're very hard to enforce and very rarely used. But here in Thailand, they're quite strict because talking disparagingly about somebody publicly can really harm them and then it harms their chances to support their family and take care of business affairs that they need in order to sustain their life. So we need to ensure that we're not talking negatively about people in public settings that's going to destroy their reputation or their character, which is going to inhibit them from being able to have a certain livelihood. Then we have talking with deceit. Talking with deceit is kind of like hiding the truth. Even though you know the truth, you may mischaracterize it or you may kind of not fully divulge the truth in order to accomplish some goal. This is also going to cause problems because if you're in a personal relationship or a business relationship and you know the full truth, but you're not divulging the full truth and it gets found out later that you're not fully describing the truth, it can actually come back and cause harm to you later. So we need to be a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. This next bullet point is lying in a joke. In going through the Buddhist teachings, one of the things that I noticed is he talks in there about how much he understands that it's so important to be trustworthy and a truth speaker that he doesn't even lie when he tells a joke. And I thought this was very profound that here's a practitioner of these teachings, probably the deepest practitioner we've ever known on the face of the earth of these teachings that doesn't even lie when he tells a joke. And it took me a while and I really thought about this and I understood how even lying in a joke can cause harm. 
And an example that I would like to share with you is let's just say, like my wife, and let's just say I kind of joke with her, and let's just say I went out to the store for uh, supposed to be 10 minutes, but say I got a flat tire and I was gone for three hours and I come back. And then when I see my wife and she says, where have you been? And I said, oh, I was at my girlfriend's house. Full knowing that I don't have a girlfriend. Full knowing that. And I was just changing a tire. Even lying in that joke. And even if I say later, I was just joking. That causes harm. Because now I'm inserting into my wife's mind that there's potentially sexual misconduct. And there's unloyalty in this relationship. And now it erodes her trust. Even if it's a joke. So the Buddha understood Gama so well that he didn't even lie in a joke. So if you can clean up your practice to the point where you don't even lie in a joke, you will be a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. And there's plenty of ways to joke without telling lies. And you may even catch yourself now that you are aware of this, of how we sometimes may joke with a lie. But if you clean that up, what you're gonna notice is you'll build stronger relationships with people around you because not only are you speaking truthful in normal average conversation, but even when you joke, you don't insert that question mark in people's minds where they see you lying, even for just one or two seconds, where it can erode trust or loyalty in a relationship. This last bullet that I've put here is I wanted to make sure we talk about the difference between legality of speech versus morality of speech. In a lot of countries, we have the freedom to essentially say whatever we wanna say whenever we wanna say it. We have the legal right to say whatever we wanna say. However, what's gonna lead you to enlightenment and become a truth speaker, one to be relied on, not a deceiver of the world, is not just following the law. Because legally, you can have hate speech. Legally, you can tell someone, I hate you. Legally, you can disparage people. You can cuss at people. You can talk down to people. You can rip people up and down, left, right, and backwards and forward, legally. But morally, is it going to lead to good results? Is it moral conduct that's going to lead to wholesome results with good relationships, both personally and professionally? And the answer is no. So the level of practice that the Buddha is describing in his teachings is not the level of legality. It's beyond legality. It's into moral conduct. So you need to make sure that you're able to distinguish the difference between legality versus morality. The guidance that the Buddha gives us is far beyond any country or any government has set up in their laws. It's legally okay to say many different things in the world, but morally, is it gonna to lead to good results? And that's what you need to consider as you're learning and practicing these teachings. Do we have any questions, Max? Not at this time, David. Okay. So we'll keep going to the fifth precept then. The fifth precept is the last precept. And it's the last precept because oftentimes if you 
participate and you don't follow this guidance, all the rest of these precepts will oftentimes get broken as part of you not practicing this last precept. This last precept, refraining from strong drink and sloth producing drugs, the basis for heedlessness. Now remember what I described at the beginning. It's important that we understand all of these words in the Buddhist teachings. When he taught, he understood impermanence. He understood that things were constantly changing. So he spoke in ways that were timeless. He used this word heedlessness intentionally because during his lifetime, strong drink was probably about one of the only things that really existed that really produced heedlessness. However, later we've developed a lot of other things that produce heedlessness. What heedlessness is, is unalertness, unawareness, unmindfulness. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. So if we are going to refrain from, and I'll just paraphrase this, substances that cause heedlessness, then we need to consider various substances and how we actually use those substances and the intention behind using those substances. What heedlessness is, is once again, unalertness, unattentiveness, and unmindfulness, unawareness of mind. Part of these teachings and where the Eightfold Path is leading us to is this calm, peaceful, serene, content mind with joy where you've developed concentration, you've developed focus, you're very clear in the mind. And this result of practicing these teachings, you can get the ability to have deep memory. And this concentration, this focus, this memory that you develop as part of practicing these teachings is it's useful for you in daily life through your personal and business relationships. It helps you make better and better decisions to create a better and better life for yourself. So if somebody is working towards a mind with concentration, with focus, with deep profound memory, which happens as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, would you pollute your mind with substances that cause heedlessness or unalertness, unawareness, unmindfulness, unawareness of mind? I wouldn't as part of these teachings. However, with the substances that we have today, it's not always black and white, just like some of these other teachings. In some teachings, in some traditions, people may share that something like marijuana is all wrong. Or somebody might say, it's all right. Everything's right about marijuana. And what I'm saying is, it all depends on your intentions and it all depends on how you use it. Because we know 100% sure that marijuana can be used for medical purposes. It's well documented that there's children and other people who have things like seizures, 20 seizures a day, every day for the last 20, 30 years of their life. And they take a little bit of marijuana oil, CBD oil, they put it in their mouth and they don't have another seizure for six months. So it's well documented that this plant, marijuana, has medicinal qualities that are helping people with health conditions. 
However, there are also people who smoke marijuana as a way of producing heedlessness, unalertness, unmindfulness, unawareness. And this is kind of an escape for reality. And in this situation, the intention behind that person smoking the marijuana is to produce heedlessness. They're doing it to get high. And this is to kind of escape reality. And in this situation, their mind is not going to be clear, concentrated, focused with profound amount of memory. They're going to be impacted by their decision to smoke marijuana. And on this other side is the person that's ingesting marijuana, perhaps with an oil for a medical purpose. Well, then we've got kind of like this middle area where there might be someone who has a medical purpose, but they've chosen to smoke it in order to ingest it into the body. Well, their intention is clear. They're using it for a medical purpose. However, by smoking it, it's doing damage to the lungs and it's harming the lungs. So this decision of using marijuana is actually causing harm. It's causing unwholesome results. So for somebody, in my view, for someone who's using marijuana for a medical purpose, they're probably going to be looking for an oil or an edible, something that can be ingested rather than smoked because smoking is going to cause harm to the physical body. And also, typically people who are looking for the medical benefits of marijuana, there's what's called THC and there's CBD. These are two different aspects of the plant. THC is what's known for causing the high. CBD is known for the medical benefits of the plant. If someone's looking for medical benefits, they're going to most likely be looking for high quality CBD oil where somebody who's going to be looking to ingest marijuana for the high, they're probably going to be looking for high levels of THC. So what other people choose is up to them. What really this practice all comes down to is what you choose. It's your practice and how you choose to practice. For me, if I had a medical purpose to use marijuana, I would look for a high level of CBD and I would look at it for an oil or some type of edible that I wouldn't be harming my lungs by ingesting this marijuana. So it's not a black and white. And this is, again, why you need guidance. Something like cigarettes. For me, I don't know any medical purpose of why somebody would use cigarettes for medical purposes. I think we're all pretty clear at this stage of life in this part of history that cigarettes are harmful to the body and using them, it does cause heedlessness. It causes unalertness, unawareness, uh, unmindfulness, and the mind becomes discontent. When there's craving for marijuana or there's craving for cigarettes, there's going to be discontentness. And if we're relying on these substances for that high, then the craving is going to be stronger and stronger and stronger. And when we don't have it, the mind's going to be discontent and it's causing harm to the body. So these are areas that you need to consider and decide if it's appropriate or if you would like to use these particular substances. The third one here that I've got listed is something like caffeine. Now, the Buddha never talked about caffeine. He talked about strong drink 
in sloth-producing drugs because caffeine didn't exist during his lifetime. That's why he used the word heedlessness. Even though I loved coffee in the past and I at one time drank lots of different sodas that contain caffeine and things like this, even teas, what I realized the more and more I practiced these teachings is I observed how caffeine drastically changed the mind where the mind would become very excited and overactive when I took caffeine. And this caused unalertness, unattentiveness, unmindfulness, where I was unaware of the mind. And in some cases, I'd had so much caffeine that I actually would say things that weren't really my true intentions. They just kind of like came out of my mouth and it led to bad things. It led to unwholesome results. And conversely, at certain times in my life, my body and my mind was addicted to caffeine. And when I would wake up in the morning, I would be very slow, very groggy, very grumpy until I started ingesting caffeine. And I could see there that it was a drug that my body and my mind was hooked to. And when I eventually decided to eliminate caffeine and slowly, gradually eliminate it, I started having shakes and I would have really bad headaches. This showed me that caffeine is absolutely a drug. Again, legal, but you have to decide how it fits in and if you would like to slowly, gradually move that out of your diet, what you're going to see is if you move caffeine out of being ingested in the body, the mind is going to become more clear, more wholesome. You're going to be able to see the qualities of the mind much more clearly. You're going to be able to see when the mind is sad or lonely or bored, or you're going to be able to see when the mind is excited and elated and just bouncing off the wall and too happy. By eliminating caffeine, you'll be able to see the pure mind more clearly. Whereas if you include caffeine and you continue to take it, you're going to see this up and down swinging of the mind, but it's just from the caffeine. It's not necessarily from your actual feelings. So you don't have to run out and eliminate caffeine this minute, right? There's, there's no judgment here. There's nobody judging you and telling you that you're wrong or you're bad for ingesting caffeine. How could I do that? Because I used to drink a lot of caffeine myself. So that's not what these teachings are about with the Buddha. And that's not what I'm sharing with you either. But what I'm sharing with you as guidance, as you get to a point in your practice where you want to refine the clarity of your mind and you want to get more and more concentration and you want to deepen your memory because you're working with more and more of these teachings, you may choose to gradually eliminate caffeine and what you're going to notice is good, wholesome results because you're going to be able to observe your mind more clearly and you're going to be able to get better concentration, better focus, and better memory as part of that. And then the last bullet here is psychedelic substances. Things like PCP, LSD, mushrooms, synthetic marijuana like spice and some other things. There's lots of different substances out there that people use for psychedelic substances. Now, there's a lot of people that do that for heedlessness and it's to create unawareness, unalertness, unmindfulness, and they kind of revel in that and there's certain craving associated with that and it kind of escape reality for a while and that can cause harm. There's people that go on these psychedelic binges and 
they either kill themselves, they kill somebody else, they accidentally walk out in front of a car and get killed. Harm can come to us when we're ingesting psychedelic substances. And then there's also people that feel that by taking psychedelic substances, it helps them to see the mind more clearly and get closer and closer to enlightenment. So there's people that actually feel this way. But what you're going to notice is any substance that you might take in order to affect the mind and the quality of the mind, it's all impermanent. It only lasts for a temporary period of time and it's going to create craving where the mind and the body is physically attached and wanting and craving this substance. Therefore, the mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's hooked to this substance. So what you should do as part of your practice is gradually work to eliminate these and any others from this point forward, even new substances that we uncover as humanity goes forward is eliminate any substance that causes heedlessness. And if you're using any of these substances now, you'll need to most likely gradually move the mind in the direction of eliminating them. It's not something that can typically switch cold turkey because they're still craving there. So you may find ways to slowly move the mind away. For example, when I finally decided to eliminate caffeine, I was drinking about two or three iced coffees a day. So I went to one a day, and then I went to one every two or three days, and then I went to one a week, you know, and then I went to one every two weeks. And then finally, I got to the point where I, I didn't need the liquid whatsoever. And as I was walking down the street, then I would smell the coffee in the coffee shop. And even though I hadn't had a coffee for four or five weeks, I would kind of allow my mind to go into the coffee shop and I would just say, okay, well, just one more coffee, just one more coffee. This is the last one. And I would drink that coffee and within halfway down, I would get a splitting headache. I would get the shakes, different problems would be happening. And finally, about a year and a half, two years ago, I finally got rid of coffee hundred percent and I don't drink any caffeine anymore. But once again, that was my choices and that were things that I observed that improved my practice. And you need to see that for yourself and choose when is the right time for you to move the mind and move your practice in this direction. If you need help, I can help you because I've already eliminated all of these things. And yes, I've done all of these things, marijuana, cigarettes, caffeine, psychedelic substances. That's why I know about them because I've actually done them all and I've eliminated them all from my practice at this point in time. So if you need help learning how to do this, you could potentially seek professional help with people that deal with these type of addictions. But if you think it's something you can manage on your own and you maybe just need a little bit of guidance from somebody who's been through it before, I can help you with suggestions that I've actually used in order to eliminate these things from my practice. And as I mentioned, this particular precept is number five, because if you don't practice this precept closely, you're more likely to do all the others. For example, if I find myself using PCP or mushrooms or marijuana or cocaine or heroin or any of these different drugs, uh, oxycodone, all of these things, you're more likely to lie, gossip, slander, talk with deceit, 
You're more likely to have sexual misconduct. You're more likely to steal from people. You're more likely to kill. In fact, if you talk to people who have had the biggest impact of unwholesome decisions, which to me are people who are in prison or in jail, you'll find that if you ask them, why are you in jail? A significant portion of them might say, I'm here because I murdered somebody, or I'm here because I robbed a bank, or I'm here for any number of other reasons. But if you talk to them deeply, they will admit to you the real reason why they're there for most people are substance abuse. They might have killed somebody, but they only did it because they were high on cocaine. Or they might have killed somebody because they just needed money for their next fix. Or they might have robbed a bank, but they only did so because they were trying to support a habit. So this last precept is utterly important because why would we pollute our body with any type of essentially poisons that are going to cause harm to the body and to the mind when we're trying to work towards this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that has concentration and focus and deep memory, why would we pollute the body or the mind with any substance that causes heedlessness? So you need to work your way towards eliminating these from your practice and you'll get more wholesome results because of that and you'll be less likely to actually break any of these other precepts. Or another way to say that is by eliminating these substances that cause heedlessness, you'll be more likely to practice all of these other precepts, which will be very beneficial for you and produce better and better results. So the five precepts, they're not going to eliminate all unwholesome karma like the Eightfold Path, but they significantly reduce unwholesome karma. So these are going to be a minimum of what you need to practice in order to attain enlightenment in this life. So with that, I would like to just take a moment and see what questions you guys have and how I can help you further. I'd like to highlight something you said earlier on, David, which was about feeling lighter, knowing that you're doing no harm. I think this is really good point to reiterate that because often when there's attachment we look at these things sometimes it's very easy for the mind to just see it as a loss like if i'm giving something up i'm losing something and what we often don't notice in that moment is actually the joyous benefits that can come <coughs> from giving things up whether it's coffee or alcohol alcohol is an obvious one because one benefit of not drinking alcohol is that you don't wake up with a hangover that's a very easy uh, correlation to draw. But everything is a bit like that. Every attachment is a bit like that. And often what can happen when we do actually give some of these things up, some of these are very, very common attachments. Other things from the precepts, there's probably no one on this call who's ever committed them. But nonetheless, there is great benefit sometimes in not having the, the afternoon crash from the coffee. And I think it's just... A useful point that you made because it's really about highlighting that actually we, we feel good when we do these things this is not morally prescriptive this is not saying you must do this but actually try this and feel the benefits and and one of the benefits is knowing in your mind that you're not doing harm and there's uh, a real lightness in that absolutely max i agree with that 
And something that the Buddha said as part of his teachings is he said, this practice is a practice of relinquishment, right? Like giving things up. Essentially, that's what you're doing by going through and learning these teachings and practicing them, right? We're giving up things like marijuana, cigarettes, caffeine, psychedelic substances. You're, you're giving up. If you happen to have multiple partners, you're, you're coming down to just one. Ultimately, by the time you get to complete enlightenment as an otter hunt, you're, you're giving up sexual activity entirely. And you're not maybe ready to do that now, but later in life you may be. And ultimately, you're giving up attachments. You're giving up cravings. You're giving up all these vices, right? And as I was kind of stripping all this stuff away out of my practice, yeah, it's very noticeable that you're giving up a lot of things. And what I came to realize as part of this is by giving up all of this stuff, you're actually getting something much, much, much better. You're getting clarity of mind. You're getting concentration. You're getting focus. You're getting memory. You're getting deep, deep wisdom to understand how to make really good decisions in life. You're getting really profound, stable foundation of teachings that are going to guide you in life and allow you to make really good, wholesome decisions. You're getting much deeper relationships, right? The more that I practice these teachings, the relationships with my loved ones, the relationship with my neighbors, the relationships with people around me, and my ability to make new relationships only deepened. At one time in my life, I was quite shy. Now, not at all. You know, you can talk to anybody. You're not afraid of anything. You're not shy. You don't feel guilt. You don't feel shame. You know how to talk to people in a very wholesome way and build really deep relationships. So not only you get, do you get a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, uh, not only do you get focus, concentration, clarity of mind, great memory, but you get a very healthy body, you get a very healthy mind, you get the ability to have very deep relationships on a personal level, and if you have business relationships, you can have very good, successful business relationships as well. So by giving up these things, you're actually creating a life and a mind that is going to give you so much more than anything that you actually give up. So when you're first learning and you're first getting into this, yeah, it seems like you're giving up a lot of things, but you're actually gaining a lot of benefit. And the more that you see that gain, the more that you see that improvement in your quality of life, the more you're going to be drawn to these teachings to practice them closer and closer. And that's ultimately how I figured out that caffeine uh, wasn't good for me because as I was stripping these things away more and more and more, and you get down to just kind of a handful of things that you're working with as still craving and attachment, my mind was becoming clearer and clearer, more concentrated, more memory. And I was just kind of looking around like, what else is there that's still a craving here? I want to get rid of all of this stuff. I want to get rid of everything. And I noticed that one of the last ones was caffeine that was making my mind go up and down and up and down. And I would get a little bit grumpy if I didn't have it, a little bit of shakes. And I was looking out for the coffee shop wherever I would go. And it was just kind of this habit of drinking coffee. And it was one of those things that I realized it had to go because it was causing 
discontentness. My attachment to it was causing discontentness. And as I mentioned, you may not be at a place where you're ready to eliminate things like caffeine or some of these other things, but that's okay. At least the more you know about the teachings, at some point in your life, when you get to that point, you'll know that these will lead to good results. So that's why I preface this whole talk with helping you understand that these aren't commandments. These aren't rules. These aren't you've sinned if you've done these things. That's not what these teachings are about whatsoever. Gautama Buddha's teachings are guidance that if you choose to learn them and you choose to practice them, you will notice that your mind becomes more clear, more concentrated, more peaceful. Your life becomes better and better because you're making better decisions. You're having deeper relationships on a personal and business level. And it's guidance. And it's there for you if you choose to learn it and practice it. One of the famous quotes you might see floating around the internet is the Buddha points the way. Everybody else needs to strive, right? The Buddha is basically saying through his teachings, this is the way. Here's the way to a better life. Here's the guidance to improve the quality of your mind. Here's the way to have a better life, better relationships, and a better quality of mind. The Buddha is pointing the way. Essentially, that's what I'm doing. I'm pointing the way, saying this is the way. And then everyone else, if they choose on their own, needs to strive in order to attain that and work to gradually move your practice closer and closer to this. And the beauty of what Gautama Buddha shared is that you can see the truth for yourself. Is by learning and practicing his teachings is you will see the mind becomes more clear, more concentrated, more focused. You'll get more peace, more calm, more clarity, more serenity of mind, more contentness, more joy. Things that once made you angry and frustrated and irritated, all of a sudden you just get a little bit annoyed. All of a sudden you feel nothing at all. So we say the proof's in the pudding, right? That's kind of like a modern way of saying it. But essentially, you see the truth for yourself through learning and practicing the teachings. And the more you learn them and the closer you bring your practice to it, you'll see the truth for yourself. So hopefully what this talk has been able to do for you is just bring to your attention and your awareness with some guidance of what you can do to bring your practice closer and closer to what Gautama Buddha taught. Because the more that you do that, the more improvements you'll see. If you're just practicing or you've just heard no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, no, no intoxicants, well, that's not the full teaching of the five precepts because no killing, as we described today, that precept is much, much deeper. No stealing, it's much deeper than that. No sexual misconduct. Well, what is sexual misconduct? What did the Buddha consider sexual misconduct? You know, we covered that today. We discussed that today. You know, what is no lying? Well, we covered that in a lot of depth. We went into gossip and slander, deceit, not lying in a joke, legality versus morality. And then if you've heard no intoxicants, 
Well, intoxicants leads us to think that perhaps that's just things like cocaine or heroin. And it kind of looks like a black and white where what I'm sharing with you is it's not black and white. And there are substances like caffeine that we would never consider to be an intoxicant. And if you truly want to get to an enlightened mind and you only practice based on these very basic translations, then you're not getting the full story of what Gautama Buddha taught. And one of my goals as a teacher is to bring forward the words of the Buddha, the actual teachings and what I know 100% works in practice. So that's what I'm sharing with you in this talk and all the other teachings that I share either in the book or podcast or various classes is exactly what the Buddha said and then how I apply that into daily life and what I've noticed as a result of that. So hopefully this talk has been helpful for you and you found some things that can improve your practice and help you along this path to a more enlightened mind. Do we have any other thoughts or questions, Max? Yes, we have a question from Neil on Facebook. <laughs> so, Neil asks, often in Facebook groups, people debate the practice of tipping. Some have very strong opinions that it's not expected here in Thailand. Instead of arguing and get the ego involved, how would one skillfully articulate the teachings of generosity? I would say you're under no obligation to explain your practice to anybody and why you're actually doing something. So first of all, don't feel obligated to explain why you do one thing versus another, because if you're confirmed in your practice and that you are interested in being generous and that's something you're doing, you're under no obligation to explain that to anybody. But should you choose to explain it, you just have to find the right words that's right for you. If somebody asked me, why do you tip when the vast majority of society doesn't expect tips? I would just say, because I like to be generous. And I'd leave it at that. You know, we don't need to really go into exhaustive talks about why we're doing one thing or another, unless somebody is very inquisitive and they're really genuinely interested in knowing why, you might want to go into how by practicing generosity, you're working to eliminate craving because craving is the primary problem that the Buddha discovered in the mind. And that's the primary thing that causes the mind to be discontent. So by you practicing generosity, you're working to train the mind to eliminate craving and to let go and to share. And that you recognize that through sharing, it helps other people. And it also helps you that you are not holding on to things so tightly and it's training the mind to do so. So hopefully in there, you found something that will help you, Bill. Uh, the teachings of the Buddha aren't about giving you exactly what to say in any particular situation, but just giving you some things to think about and how you might want to approach it. So there in that answer, I kind of gave you three different things. Is One, you don't have to say anything at all. Two, you may just want to say something simple that you choose to be generous. Or three, if you want to go into the more the deeper understanding of why you're practicing generosity, it all relates back to craving and craving is what causes discontentness of mind and craving is also what causes rebirth. So anybody who's working in this practice would be working to eliminate craving as part of the practice of the Buddhist teachings. 
So we have no more questions, David, but we have a lot of thank yous. So, uh, yeah, thank you from Ponzi, Ting, Bill, um, scrolling here, Charlie, Uma. Um, so I'd also just like to thank all of you and ev everyone else who commented and asked questions today. It's been a good session. So thank you very much. Okay, so I'll just close out by saying, reiterating back to all those people and to all the people that are joining here in the virtual classroom and the people listening on the podcast, I would just like to say thank you because by you choosing to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha, you are significantly reducing and ultimately eliminating all your unwholesome decisions. You're eliminating your unwholesome karma. And by you eliminating your unwholesome karma through only producing wholesome decisions, wholesome results, wholesome karma, you're actually helping to improve humanity. You're not only improving your life, but you're imp improving the life of all the people around you and all of humanity. The only way that this world becomes a better world, a more peaceful, a more calm, a more serene, a more content, a more joyful world, is if each individual person in the world chooses to practice teachings that lead to peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentness and joy for you as an individual and for the people around you. So by you learning the Eightfold Path and practicing that, you're improving the condition of your mind through improving your practice, but you're also benefiting all the people around you and you're benefiting all of humanity. By you learning and practicing the five precepts, you're improving your life, yes, but you're also improving the, the life of the people around you and all of humanity. So while you guys thank me for teaching, I would like to thank you for choosing to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha because it's the very best thing that you could ever do for yourself and all of humanity. So thank you very much. Kapkun Kap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.